Thank you so much, praise team, for leading us in worship today. I want to invite you to take God's word and turn to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to go ahead and jump right into the text this morning. As I mentioned last week, with our series in James concluding and the start of our Christmas series next week, we had this week planned that uh, we had set aside, it was just going to be a standalone message and we were gonna do something that revolved around Thanksgiving, but with what is going on in the Middle East and taking place in Israel specifically, I thought it would be a good time uh, to address this as a church. You know, my goal as pastor in preaching is to give you a well-balanced diet of God's word. And that's why sometimes we will do a series like James where we go verse by verse, kind of expositionally through the scriptures. Other times we'll shift between an Old Testament book or a New Testament book, or we'll do a topical series. But even in a topical series, we're always working through a text because we believe that God's word is sufficient, that it's authoritative, and that it speaks to every issue and concern we face in life. And sometimes uh, something takes place, whether it's in our country or in our world, it's just so significant. Uh, it may be an event like 911 or like what we're talking about today, what we see on the news every single day uh, since the beginning of October uh, in, as it relates to Israel. And wisdom calls for us to take a time out of whatever it is uh, that we may be doing and address from a biblical spiritual worldview, what we see taking place in the world and what it seems everyone is talking about. And that's the case today. As Christians, there is always a heightened sense of awareness for us when something takes place in Israel. This is, of course, what we refer to as the Holy Land. It's the place where so much biblical history took place. It's the land where Jesus was born, where he walked and performed miracles during his earthly ministry. It's the place where he was crucified and buried and rose again. It's the place where he promises to return. And it's not just the land that it's important, it's the people of Israel, the Jewish people. For the most part, gave us all of the Bible that we hold in our hands. It's from the Jewish people that our Messiah, the Savior, came. It's the Jewish people who were given According to the scripture, everlasting covenants that as believers, it colors, it affects what we believe about them. And so when a group like Hamas comes along, and we'll talk a little bit more about them here in just a minute, and they unleash terrorism and death upon the people of Israel, we know from a human standpoint uh, that it's morally wrong and reprehensible. But because of what we believe about Israel and the Jewish people from the scripture, we know there's something deeper at play here. And so that's what I want us to talk about today. I'm calling the message Israel and the Christian. I'm gonna outline this message in four points. We're gonna look at Israel and what's taking place and why it matters from a biblical perspective, a spiritual perspective, a historical perspective, and a political perspective. And there's a a lot in here, and so I wanna ask up front as we get going, number one, for your patience. I wanna ask for your grace, because there's no way in the time allotted for this message that we could cover everything here. Uh, and I just want uh, us uh, to settle in for the next 40 minutes or so and see what God would have to say to us through his scriptures about Israel 
and the Christian. Let's begin with a biblical perspective. Where did Israel begin? Who is Israel? Starts with a person named Abram or Abraham as we know him. And I want you to look at Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse one. We're gonna read the first three verses first. And I want you to notice the word bless is mentioned five times in these verses, as well as the phrase, I will, as spoken from God. Genesis chapter 12, verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So I want you to notice Israel is a land. Now I'll make of you a great nation. It's also a people. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so this promise comes from God to Abraham and it is a promise that is reiterated over and over and over again. I want us to look at the land portion first. Again, when we talk about Israel, it's not just a land and a people, as we'll see momentarily, but let's work out what we're talking about when we say land. Genesis chapter 12, look at verse four. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through to the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak at Moreh. And at that time, the, candidates were, uh, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. So we have this land being given to Abraham and to his descendants by God. And the specifics of this landmass are spelled out even more in Genesis chapter 15. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Now this is an important piece of scripture. This is what, where we get what is known as the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham that is unilateral meaning it is one-sided. Most covenants in the day were made between two groups of people, two parties, and they would make it a covenant, an agreement with each other, and they would ratify that covenant through the means of a ceremony. The most serious of the covenants were when the parties would take an animal and they would slay that animal. It alludes to a sacrifice. They would cut the animal in half and they would lay that animal on the ground separated by its parts and the two parties, whatever they agreed to, would walk through the body parts of those animals and agree to a covenant with one another. And the word picture was, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. It was a serious covenant. What's significant about the Abrahamic covenant is God puts Abraham in a deep sleep and Abraham doesn't walk through this covenant, but instead you read Genesis chapter 15, God, his presence walks through what was cut in half. He alone walks through them. In other words, this is a covenant that God is going to keep regardless if Abraham keeps it or not. It's why it's referred to in Genesis chapter 17 verse seven as an everlasting covenant. We read a bit of this in Genesis chapter 15 verses 18 through 21, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, 
saying, take your offspring and I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Electrolites, the Termites, all right? <laughs> Joke always works every time. So he gives this land, an allotment of land. I want to show you a map with this land area. It's important to know as we look at this map on the screen uh, that at no time in Israel's history have they owned all of this land. Uh, but it's not just given one time. This promise of this land, what we call greater Israel, it is promised in Genesis 26, 28, Exodus 33, Numbers 34, Deuteronomy 30, Joshua chapter 1. And while Israel's never owned all of it, you can see, and it's no wonder that there are fights in the land now. Just imagine if they did own all of this, what it would be like. Uh, now, zooming in, uh, you see on this map, Israel today. And when Abram was called from the Ur of the Chaldees, which was modern day Iraq, he traveled into the land of Canaan. And when God showed him Canaan, you just need to know that general land area is to the west of the Dead Sea and Sea of Galilee. That was what was primarily known as Canaan. But again, you see the greater Israel that is marked out by the scriptures. And so Israel is a land, but it's also a people. Now we've already read that God promised this land to Abraham and his descendants, his offspring. And this is where it gets really interesting because if you know anything about the story of Abraham and Sarah, you know God makes this promise that they would have a son, but you fast forward 10 years and Sarah is not pregnant and they're not getting any younger. Abraham is 86 at the time. Sarah, 10 years younger, 76, and both are pretty discouraged. It seems that God is not coming through on his promise. And isn't it true, waiting on God is never, ever easy. But let me tell you what is a cardinal sin that you never wanna do while you wait on God. And that is to get ahead of God. That's exactly though what Abraham and Sarah do. They take matters into their own hands. And instead of waiting on God, they decide to play God. And so what do they do? There is an Egyptian maidservant that is serving them in their home. Her name is Hagar. And Sarah comes up with this idea, runs it past her husband, and says, listen, I want you to sleep with my maidservant, Hagar, and the child that comes from her will raise as our own, and this will be the nation of people that God has promised us. Now, just a couple of things to note here. Number one is, Abraham did not push back on this plan. He was like, sleep with my servant? Whatever makes you happy, Sarah. And he does this. In fact, it's one sentence in our Bibles, but it says so much, Genesis 16, two. And Sarah, I said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant that it, that, uh, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. 
He didn't listen to the voice of God. He listened to the voice of Sarah. It's never good listening to somebody else's voice other than God. It's especially when it comes to issues of the lust of the flesh. Never listen to your flesh. Secondly, and most importantly, and this is not an overstatement to say this, the decision they made here, all that we have seen throughout history as it relates to Israel in their conflict with other nations, all that we see as it relates to this conflict with Hamas currently taking place, it can all be traced back to this one decision of Abraham and Sarah not waiting on God. So a practical application before going on is do not get out in front of God. Don't make major life decisions without consulting the Lord. Don't let silence from God, even if it's a long time, tempt you to take matters into your own hands. Trust the Lord and wait on him. If he has given you his word, he will come through in his own time, in his own way. Abraham and Sarah did not do this. And as a result, the servant maid Hagar gets pregnant And I'm condensing a lot of what took place here simply because of time, but conflict immediately arises between Sarah and Hagar. The sight of pregnant Hagar sends Sarah over the edge, and she just makes life miserable for Hagar. In fact, she makes life so miserable for Hagar that Hagar runs away into the wilderness, and it's at this time that God, having compassion on her, visits her in the form of a vision. And I want you to see what takes place. He sends an angel of the Lord to her. The scripture says he sends the angel of the Lord to her, which many believe is the uh, picture of the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. And this prophecy is spoken over Hagar's life and the child that she would have. Genesis chapter 16, look at verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Now listen to this prophecy. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. The best commentator's uh, description that I could see of this is he would be a, a man of untamed character. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now I want you to keep this name Ishmael and keep this prophecy given in mind and fast forward 14 years. Abraham is now 99 years old. Sarah, 10 years younger, she still hasn't given birth, been given this promised son, and it appears in her mind that all hope is lost. Now, I just want to say here, with the God that we serve, hope is never lost. Never forget that. And God shows up, and he visits Abraham, and he reiterates this covenant that was made with him way back when he called him from the land of Ur, 
Genesis chapter 17, listen to what the scripture says. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all of the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And this is where the covenant of circumcision is enacted. It would be an outward sign of this covenant that Abraham and his descendants would keep to show that they are part of the covenant people of God. This is also where Isaac, who we refer to as the child of promise, this is where his birth is prophesied. Continue down to verse 15 of Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. This was a father who loved his son, who was 13 years old at the time. But look at what God says. God said, verse 19, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you this time next year. And everything that is prophesied and foretold happens. Isaac is born a key part of his life is when he is a teenage boy, God calls Abraham to take him to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. There's a lot of imagery that takes place, and this is Genesis chapter 22. Isaac carries his own wood for the sacrifice up Mount Moriah. It's a picture of Jesus who would ultimately carry the cross to his place of execution. Mount Moriah is the exact mountain where the temple was built, where all the Old Testament sacrifices of old would take place. It's also the Mount Calvary where Jesus would be crucified. Again, a lot of imagery, but this is a very important event because Abraham, as he 
raises his knife to sacrifice his son. God stays his hand. He provides a ram caught in the thicket to be the substitutionary death instead of Isaac. That is a picture of Jesus. He is our substitute. He is putting on on the cross. He pours out his blood in exchange for us. We see this imagery. And what we see is when God sees Abraham's faith, Abraham fully trusts in him, puts his son of promise on the altar. God sees this. And listen to what God says to Abraham, Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18, this promise of land and people and a coming Messiah is given. And the angel of the Lord, verse 15, called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn to clear the Lord because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. See the language there? I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring, your offspring. This covenant had to do with land, yes. People, yes. But a Messiah, he will possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so you fast forward this. Isaac has two sons. One of them is named Jacob. Covenant promise goes from Isaac to Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons, which we come to know as the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's to these men and their descendants that this land is ultimately allotted to. And so we see Israel is a land, it's a people, it's, it's where the promised Messiah will come from, but we've also seen this, Ishmael is a people, he'll have descendants, and he's given land. In Genesis chapter 25, listen to verse 17. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. And he settled over against all of his kinsmen. Now I'm gonna put you a map just where I showed you greater Israel. And here I wanna show you Ishmael's descendants, where they would live, the land that they were allotted. So you see it's Shur right there in the Abraham, Arabian Peninsula, and it goes all the way to what is essentially uh, uh, Kuwait right there. That is the land, uh, modern day Kuwait, where that is the land uh, given. Now, one of the reasons the descendants of Ishmael have been referred to as Arabs is this right here, what you see. Again, a large portion of their land was the Arab Peninsula. And while we're talking terms here, you hear the word Palestine or Palestine, Palestinians, uh, thrown around. You need to know that Palestine is never mentioned in the Bible. Uh, biblical scholars debate whether it's mentioned once, but this was a term that the Romans gave when they had their empire going on there, and that's why you see in many old school Bibles, even in the, in the maps, you'll see the land of Palestine, but the Bible never refers to it as such. Palestine is a derivative of the word Philistine or Philistia. It marked the region where the Philistines lived, 
which was along the Mediterranean coast, what we see as what we call today the Gaza Strip. Now, I want to give you a map of modern-day Israel because the Palestinian land has uh, fluctuated through the years. And today, you see modern-day Israel, and then you see pockets of land that are Palestinian-controlled. There you see the West Bank. It includes places like Jericho and Bethlehem. And then you see the Gaza Strip, which is where what we're seeing take place today, all of that is, for the most part, happening. We'll deal a little bit more with this hostility between Palestine, Palestine, and Israel in the uh, historical section of the message, but we've been talking the biblical section. Now, I wanna move to the spiritual perspective of what we see in this. Recognizing that some of these perspectives are gonna overlap, I thought that I would put the Muslim movement and religion within the spiritual perspective because of the nature of the subject. We're dealing with spiritual when we talk about this religion. Now, I wanna be very careful in what I say here. As a preacher of the gospel, I have an obligation under God to teach truth and combat lies. The church is called the buttress of truth. And I believe when it comes to the Islamic faith, we are dealing with a religion that is at its root demonic in nature, just as any religion is that teaches a different way to God other than the person of Christ. It's anti-Christ and it's a false teaching that is leading millions of people astray. Now, why do I say it has roots in the demonic? And I want you to hear me. I did not say that those who follow the teaching of Islam are demonic. Um, In fact, every Muslim I've ever met seem to be wonderful people, incredible, kind, family people, do great work in the community. Most live at peace. They wanna practice their religion without hindrance, which in the United States is a privilege and a right. And so I wanna reiterate and I wanna emphasize, I did not say followers of Islam are demonic. However, I do believe the Muslim movement at its root is demonic. Why do I say that? Galatians chapter one, starting in verse six, Paul wrote the church at Galatia and he said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before and now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. When Muhammad at the age of 40, who was known to be contemplative and meditative, went into a cave in his hometown of Mecca and received his first revelation, which he believes, and it is said, was from the angel Gabriel. Gabriel served as the mediator. I believe that Muhammad saw what he saw and heard what he heard. I don't think he was lying. I think he saw it. Now, I don't believe it was the same Gabriel that showed up to Mary and prophesied the birth of the Messiah, but I do believe that Muhammad saw what he thought was an angel, but in reality was a demon in disguise. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, 
Paul said, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Now, Muhammad didn't immediately start a new religion. That wasn't his plans. His revelations and his teachings evolved over time. The word Islam means submission. At the heart of the Muslim faith is submission to Allah. Allah is the Arabic name for God. When Muhammad received his vision, the pagan Arabs were worshiping a number of gods. And Allah was not the name of God. It was the name for God. Allah was the most high God. That's why we're, we see in the Quran, you are to worship Allah, the most high God, and Allah alone. When you hear the phrase, Allahu Akbar, that phrase means Allah is greater, or Allah is the greatest. He's the most high. So it needs to be said at this point in the message that Yahweh, Jehovah, That is not the same God as Allah. There's only one El Elyon, most high God, and we believe that it is Yahweh, God, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is, according to scripture, the great I am. Jesus took this name for himself. He is God, Muslims reject. This idea of a Trinitarian God, certainly Jesus is not the fulfillment of the offspring of Abraham. And I put this all in the spiritual perspective because I want you to see how in Islam, Satan has counterfeited the one true gospel. If you look closely at it, it counterfeits the Jewish belief system that our Christian worldview and belief system flows from. The Jews have a holy book. Christians have a holy book. Islam has a holy book. Jews take their Sabbath on Saturday. We as Christians take ours on Sunday. Muslims take theirs on Friday. We claim that Isaac is the child of promise, the one to whom the land is given. Muslims claim that Ishmael is the promised favored child of Abraham and that Ishmael was the one that was taken to Mount Moriah by Abraham all those years ago, and that land belongs to his descendants. Not only that, but Muslims, while they believe Jesus is a prophet, they believe that Muhammad is the prophet, and that he's a direct descendant of Ishmael. And so you can see in all of this information that's given, you can see why the sons of Abraham, the Jewish people, and the sons of Ishmael, The Arabs, and not all Arabs are Muslim and vice versa, but you can see why they've been fighting it out for all of history and will until Jesus comes. There is a deeply spiritual element at work and at play here, and you can bet that Satan is the one stoking the fires of anti-Semitism, especially in the Arab nations that are surrounding Israel. What we see is the prophecy of Genesis 16. Your hand will be against your enemies. They will be against yours. We can see it at play. We talk about spiritual warfare. Consider the people of Israel and how Satan has had it out for them. Even before Abraham, the first gospel, Genesis chapter three, verse 15. Adam and Eve choose to sin against God. They rebel against God. He puts a curse 
on them, the land, the serpent, Genesis 3.15, we call it the first gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. This is the gospel here, the offspring of a woman. This is the promise of the covenant. It's going to come through Abraham, through Isaac, ultimately to Jesus. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We're headed into the Christmas season. And what we celebrate at Christmas is a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. You can trace it back to the garden. Ever since that prophecy was given, Satan, this is what we're talking about from a spiritual perspective, wanted to prevent that offspring from occurring. Just think about it. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. And what immediately takes place, Satan incites Cain, fills his heart with evil, and he kills Abel. And what did Eve say in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25? And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain had killed him. Look at the genealogy of Jesus. Read Luke's gospel, and we see that Jesus came from the line of David, from the line of Jacob, from the line of Abraham, from the line of Seth. And if you look at the names given, we already mentioned how the enemy tried to stop the offspring of Eve. Not only does he infuse Cain to kill Abel, but what happens? Esau tries to kill Jacob, i.e. Israel. When the Hebrews were in captivity, Exodus chapter 3, God was blessing them and there were so many males being born. Pharaoh decides that if from now on, any males being born, throw them in the Nile. Extinguish them. Who's behind this mass killing? Satan is. He's doing anything and everything he can to stop the Messiah who will crush his head at Calvary and rule over him with a rod of iron at his return. Think about the attacks that the enemy puts on David. Think about the evil Haman who wanted to exterminate the Jews, annihilate them from the face of the earth, and would have if it wouldn't have been for courageous Esther and the sovereignty and purposes of God. Satan has always tried to destroy Israel in order to eliminate the promised Messiah, but he couldn't stop the hand of God. He couldn't prevent the purposes of God from moving forward. No one can. Job chapter 42 verse 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jesus was eventually born to the Jewish people. Satan went after him, tried to prevent him from ever growing up, put into the mind and heart of Herod, jealousy, slaughter all of the male children under the age of two. Satan couldn't stop it then, so he tries to get Jesus to fail in the wilderness at his temptation, get him to abort his mission, he couldn't stop it then, so he fills Judas with a heart of betrayal, incites the crowd to yell, crucify, maybe that'll do the trick. Satan has always hated Israel because she is the mother of the Messiah. 
He's always hated Jesus because he couldn't get to him. He was the savior of the world. Satan hates the rule and reign of Christ, which is exhibited in the church today, which is why you can see the onslaught of of just secular cultures coming against the church, the warfare that comes against me and you. You look throughout history, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the Caesars of Rome, Hitler in Germany, or Hamas and Hezbollah and all of Iran today, what is the state of goal to take out Israel. Why? Because as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9, they are the Israelites, verse 4 and 5. And to them belong the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Satan cannot stand them. And by the way, Satan's not all-knowing like God is, but he does read, and he knows the Scripture. And he wants Israel done away with. He wants Jerusalem destroyed because he knows the promises of God that are in Scripture. He knows one day very soon Jesus promises to return to the very place he ascended from, the Mount of Olives. And the Bible says when he returns, every eye will see him on that day. And Satan is working overtime to see that that day never comes. And just like he tried to destroy him at his first coming, he is trying to ruin his second coming, but it is not going to happen. Jesus has won the ultimate victory in his resurrection. And he has promised he's going to come back and he's going to spike the ball and we're going to celebrate for all of eternity. So you have a biblical perspective. You have a spiritual perspective. Now I want to turn to the historical perspective. We're not going to spend as long on these next two as we did the first two. But we need to highlight the miracle that is the nation of Israel. As noted, there's no other nation in history that has been systematically removed from their homeland, dispersed, essentially done away with, And yet nearly 2,000 years later, this people return and return to their land. This is the Jewish people though. While we're given terms, let me give you the term Zionism. Zion is Hebrew for holy land or holy place or exalted place. And Zionism is a movement that began in the late 1800s to the early 1900s And it was Jewish thought leaders who knew anti-Semitism was always going to exist. And so they desired to go back to their homeland. They knew they needed their own ethnic identity and opportunity to live and work and practice their religion where it was founded without fear of being forced into extinction. And so they get together and this idea is we're going to go back to our homeland, to Zion to the holy place, which was so symbolic of God's favor and calling. And so they begin to meet together, these thought leaders, and they begin to prepare for this. They revived the Hebrew language, which was extinct. Only the rabbis were teaching it at the time. They began to reestablish the customs and traditions and culture of old. They came up with a national anthem and made a national flag, which you see with the Star of David. To this day, never did they believe when they were meeting that within 50 years, what they were working on 
would come to fruition. And on May the 14th, 1948, there was a great sympathy toward the Jewish people coming out of World War II and the Holocaust. And the United Nations passed a resolution that recognized them as a state. And in one day, talk about the miracle of Israel, in one day, they are reborn. And the first country to recognize Israel as an official state that day was the United States of America. So there's always been this close kindred bond with the people and nation of Israel. Well, it's amazing, speaking of miracles, the nations surrounding them, Ishmael's descendants, Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, they immediately threatened war that day with the goal of pushing Israel, I quote, to put the Jews into the sea. And that started the 1948 War of Independence. And down through those years, 1956, Suez War against Egypt, the Six-Day War of 1967, the Yom Kippur War of 1973, you have wars and battles against the Palestinian Liberation Organization and now against Hamas, whose stated goal is to wipe out the Zionist entity. It is a miracle that Israel is still in existence today. And you wanna talk about miracle, the Holocaust, nearly six million Jews exterminated. The population of Israel today is right at nine million and seven of the nine are Jews. Living in a landmass the size of New Jersey. It's the miracle of Israel. Historically, this is a land that has been fought for and will continue to be fought for until the day of Jesus comes. And so truly, it's not just a miracle that is in existence, it's a miracle for sure that is thriving. Fourth and finally, I wanna give you a political perspective. Now, I've showed you a lot of maps today. I wanna to show you this one. This is from an organization called Freedom House. And what they look at is free countries in the world, democracies in the world. And the blue color is free, yellow is partly free, and the other is not free at all. Israel's so small, you can't even see it on this map, but if you had binoculars, you would zoom in, and Israel's the only one in the Middle East that's blue nearly the only one. And so when we look at the Israel today, one of the reasons it's important is because it's one of the only countries that share the same beliefs as us. A love for freedom, free enterprise. They're a chance to practice whatever religion you want to as long as it's done in peace. So there are certainly national security interests that we could cite as important for coming alongside Israel. However, that doesn't just mean we support them blindly. Just like here in the United States, we don't agree with everything our politicians do. And so just because Israel does something doesn't mean we just sign off and support it. But they do have a representative government that's elected by the people. And so again, it is important to stand beside them politically. But where do we go from here? When we looked at Israel from a biblical, spiritual, historical, political perspective, What's our role? What's our responsibility as Christians as it relates to these realities? Well, first and foremost, we are to pray. We are commanded to pray for the peace and welfare of the people of Israel. God loves Israel. Not just the people, but the land. Zechariah 8, 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. 
Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Psalm 122, it's a psalm of ascent. Jewish pilgrims would travel up to Jerusalem and they would recite these psalms together, sing these psalms together as they walked up the holy mount of Jerusalem to attend the festivals and to make their sacrifices. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you, peace within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sakes, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The very first thing we can do for the people of Israel is to pray. Pray for peace. Pray for their welfare. Pray for their salvation. Now, I'm not talking about just the Jewish people. Pray for the Palestinians, those that are suffering. Palestinian believers, pray for their safety in this war. Depending on your end times theology, which we haven't said much about today, there are many who believe that at the end of time, in the last days, there will be a great harvest of Jewish people coming to know Christ. And some say that's happening right now. There was a man from Israel in our services last week who operates a seminary over there. He came to me when I told you I was gonna preach this message. And he says, I want you to know there are more Jewish people coming to know Christ than any time in history right now. And so it's happening. I believe with the scriptures, Israel will be saved the time of Jesus' return. And again, don't just pray for Israel. Pray for innocent Palestinians caught in the crossfire, for Palestinian believers who are living in Gaza and the West Bank. They're suffering. They're our brothers and sisters. I know them. Met many of them in my travels over there. Great, wonderful people. And let me say this. Also, pray against Hamas. And that leads me to the second action step, and that is speak. One of the reasons I'm preaching this message today is hopefully give you some information that will help you speak to coworkers, family members about the things that we see taking place in Israel. We need to speak against the evil of Hamas. Their stated goal is to exterminate the Jewish people. They are terrorists, they are evil to the core, and you can't trust them. They are the ones that need to be eradicated. There's such a thing as a just war. Thomas Aquinas wrote, others have built on top of it through the years, that for a war to be just, it needs to be declared by competent authorities. Has to be a good chance or likelihood of success, and there has to be a just cause or reason for the war. Israel can check off all of these. This is a just war against Hamas. Now, they need to make sure that they conduct themselves in a just way during this war, but I can't imagine all that they're up against. Hamas doesn't play by the rules. They don't fight fair. And so we shouldn't hesitate to call evil, evil. When you kill 1,200 people in one day and take over 240 people hostage, including women and children, that is evil to the core. Proverbs 24, 11 and 12, rescue those who are being taken away to death, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay a man according to his work? Verse 24 and 25, whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by the peoples, abhorred by the nations. Look at verse 25, but those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. And so we pray, we speak, and third and finally, we support. As I've prayed through this, 
wrestled with this. How do we support the people of Israel in this time? I, I made a phone call to the president of Send Relief, Bryant Wright, who's a great friend to our church. Send Relief is the third largest relief organization in the world behind Red Cross and Franklin Graham Samaritan Purse. It's the relief organization that is designated by the Southern Baptist Convention. It works with the International Mission Board and our North American Mission Board. And I recently saw that Brian, who's a friend, was over in Israel just a few weeks ago. And he was at a place called the Baptist Village. It's about 25 miles from Tel Aviv. It's, a, it's an encampment there that is run and operated by uh, Christians, Baptist Christians. And they have turned that camp into a makeshift home for displaced Israelis, people who lost their homes in the war, either by being bombed or burned or destroyed. And so right now there's makeshift tents with bunk beds and kind of astroturf carpet so they'll have a clean place to walk around in their tents. There's makeshift showers. I was I called Bryant this week and just said, man, I'm preaching on this message. Is there, how can we show support? Saw that you're at this Baptist village. Is there anything that we, they need that we can do? He was telling me that it's now an Israeli law that according to the property in which you live, you by law have to have a number of storm shelters on that property that correspond with the number of people there. And because this encampment has all of these people that have come that they're serving in the name of Christ, many of them are coming are not Christian. They, they have to have some bomb shelters. And he said, they're in need of one bomb shelter. I said, how much does a bomb shelter cost? He said, depending on the size, somewhere between 30 and $35,000. So I called our business office and I knew we had a disaster relief fund here at the church that Many of you give to throughout the year. It's a way that when a disaster hits, we don't pass the plate every time a disaster hits. There's funds in there and we can immediately send that out and we can just fill that account up later as it comes. And so I called our business office knowing that this bomb shelter was gonna cost in between 30 to $35,000. And I said, how much is in our designated, uh, our, our disaster relief fund? And they looked and they came back and they said, $37,000. And so Champion Force, because of your generosity, we're gonna provide a bomb shelter uh, there at the Baptist Village there in Israel as a sign of support. I'm also talking to Bryant because sin relief is all over. I wanna be balanced in this. I, I wanna help those innocent Palestinians and the Palestinian believers uh, who are in pain and who are suffering. And so we're working right now to uh, designate some ministries that we can send some resources to. And so online, if you want to give, you can go and you can just, uh, at the drop box there, there will be a disaster relief tag and you can give. We're gonna keep it open for about a week and whatever comes in that, we're gonna make sure that we get, we're gonna fill that tank back up and we're gonna make sure that some goes to these Palestinian believers who are in need and suffering. It's just one way that we can support what's taking place. I know we have covered a lot today. But what a call to pray for, to speak up for, and to support uh, the people of Israel and those who are in harm's way there in the Middle East. Uh, thank you, Champion Force, uh, for embracing this message today listening to this message and being the hands and feet of Jesus as we try to do all that we can to fulfill exactly what we talked about through today's message. Would you pray with me? 
Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforce.org connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus, in person, on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.